David also captured all the flocks and herds of the people, and they drove the livestock before him, and they said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays behind with the baggage. And they share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Let's take a moment to reflect on this story about David. And uh, then we'll talk about it. Recently, uh, my wife and I, Nancy, started watching a Netflix series. There's really not that much to watch on television, so when somebody recommends some kind of series, then you're interested in watching it. And so somebody recommended to her this series called Designated Survivor. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Story is that uh, some unknown terrorist group blows up the Capitol building while the State of the Union is going on. So in the State of the Union, you have the president there, you have all the people that are all the elected political officials. And so when they blow that up, everybody that's been elected is dead, except for one person. Who's that person? The designated survivor, this person who's kind of off-site in case something like this happens. And so immediately this designated survivor who just happens to be a secretary of housing and urban development, he, who had no real political ambitions, suddenly he becomes the president. He has to figure out how to chase down, you know, the bad guys. And he also has to figure out how to repair the, the government itself. And of course, in a good drama fashion, the end of every episode, some clue is discovered about who's behind the, the nefarious plot to blow up the government and then it ends, and you're like, oh, I've got you know, to wait a week to get to the next episode. But thankfully, according to Netflix, what do you do? You just click on that episode, and you roll right in. This is how you binge on shows. Um, so you don't have to worry about the cliffhanger, and you don't have to worry about the storyline because you can keep up with it because you can just kind of move on. One of the difficulties about preaching through a long book like this, 1 Samuel 31 chapters, is that it's a slow click to the next episode. So we started the very first episode September the 9th, 2018. So we've been at this for nine months. And I realized that when you come in at any one time, it's, it's hard to keep the storyline up. There's so many different characters involved and so many different plots that if you miss one or just time goes by, you can't keep everything in mind. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to think of chapter 30 as like this episode. It's one episode. It happens to be the next to the last episode. And I want us to think about it like a, an episode on Netflix. We're watching it together. And I'll just try to remind you of some things about what's happened and what is happening. And we'll just press pause 
and I'll explain some things and maybe make some application, and then we'll move forward through the text together, okay? So everybody good with that? So we're watching this one episode here this morning, and to, before we begin, we have to have, like a lot of episodes say, previously on. You know, it has that little two minutes of information beforehand. So previously in 1 Samuel, uh, let's go back to chapter 15. In chapter 15, as, as you read through the story, you discover Saul, who's been chosen to be king by God, he has a fatal flaw. This king who's been chosen by God is not for God. He's for Saul. Saul is for Saul. And, of course, you can make it your own connection, but you can just see how this is just a replay of Genesis chapter 3. David, who's supposed to be the king in the garden, chosen by God, he has a fatal flaw. What's, what's his fatal flaw? Adam is for Adam. Saul, chosen by God to be the new king of a new country, has a fatal flaw. Saul is for Saul. We learn that in chapter 15. And what we learn is that he refused to obey God's commands. He was uh, supposed to destroy this wicked group of men called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites you might think of as like terrorists small group who lives in the southern part of Israel. And what they do is they just go into different locations and they always pick on the weak and the poor and the unprotected. They never fight a battle against an army. They always wait until there's a, a unique moment and they go in and raid and then run back out to their, to their home. But Saul didn't do that. And so the spirit of the Lord left Saul and Saul was left on his own from chapter 15 to the end of the book which is what Saul wanted. Chapter 16, David is anointed to be one day to become king, but then for the rest of the book, 14 chapters from, from uh, chapter 16 to the end is 10 years, and those 10 years are the exact same thing. Saul's chasing David around the desert or around the wilderness. They're hiding from cave to cave. Saul understands there's some anointing on David. He wants to eliminate David, and so for 10 years, David, who had been anointed king, now he's running away, and it comes to a furious end in these last few chapters with all kinds of twists and turns. And if you were filming these last few chapters as a Netflix series, you'd want to split the screen because the events are happening simultaneously. Some events are happening to Saul, and at the same time, some events are happening to David. So in chapter 27, out of complete desperation, and you won't believe this, David decides, instead of running from cave to cave, David's going to take his fighting men and join the Philistine army. This is really a stunning moment. David is joining Goliath's team. I mean, how is this possible? You can, you can sense the desperation. I mean, I'm so sick and tired of living in caves. And so David somehow convinces his fighting men, hey guys, we're going to leave our families here in these small villages. Hopefully they'll be protected. And me and 600 men, we're all going to join the Philistine army. Then one day the Philistines decide, let's go fight Israel. And David and his 600 men gear up and start marching for the battle line to fight against Israel. Is David, anointed to be king of Israel, going to fight against his own people? 
cliffhanger. End of episode. You don't like, what? How, how can this be? How can it possibly work out? Chapter 28, at the same time, David is marching towards the battle line. Saul's marching towards the same battle line. He knows there is an invasion that's immediately on the horizon. And Saul's nervous. He's always nervous when he's fighting the Philistines. He previously, he's had David. Previously, he's had Samuel to give him some direction. But now he's, he's cut himself off from God. And he's nervous. And we did a sermon on this very fascinating chapter, chapter 28. In his distress, he seeks out a witch for advice, a medium, a necromancer, somebody who talks with the dead. And really, in a very unusual chapter that you'll have to read on your own, Saul discovers that he and his sons are going to die in the next 24 hours. Back to David, chapter 29. Philistines and David are marching towards this battle line, and the Philistine generals start thinking, you know, how, how can we be so sure? I mean, David killed Goliath. How can we be so sure that right in the middle of the battle, David and his 600 men switch sides? And now we find ourselves in a real mess. So they, they sent David home. David, go back to your family. And you're like, wow. And it's one of those little moments in the Bible that you say, well, what if? I mean, what if the Philistines hadn't become nervous about David? What would David have done at that moment in the battle? But, you know, you don't get to see how that could have played out. So David, he returns back home, and that brings us here to chapter 30. David and his men march home. They've been with the Philistines for 16 months. They've been separated from their families. And this is the first thing they discover. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, they marched for three days. They found out that the Amalekites had raided this area that they've left their family in. They burned it with fire. They've taken captive everything, every every man, every woman, every child, everything great and small. They didn't kill anyone, but they carried them off and they went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned, everybody taken captive. And then David and his people who were with them raised their voices Listen to this phrase, they wept until they had no more strength to weep. This is rock bottom. Most of us have been at some place like this. Like you've cried so long, you just say, I don't have anything left to give. And you can appreciate the depths of this moment. They... These men, they've given everything, they've given their whole lives the last 10 years to David. They thought he was going to be king. But instead, what they've done is they've run around in the wilderness for 10 years with their families. They've been running from cave to cave, risking their lives. Then in some crazy idea of desperation, David convinces them to go fight for the Philistines. And so they do go fight for the Philistines. They're away from their family for 16 months. And in some miraculous intervention, they get rescued out of fighting against their own brothers. And they come home, and what do they find? They find their whole families. Everything they valued, their families, their homes, their livestock, it's all been gone or burned. And this is why they wept until they had no more strength to weep. And this group of men are so far down It says, verse 6, they're bitter in soul. I wonder if your soul has ever been bitter. 
You know, you get in bitter circumstances, but then sometimes the bitterness gets in your soul. And it gets so bitter, look what they decide to do. Some of the men said it's time to stone David. So I want to just pause on this episode here and ask this very important question. How do you react in great distress? I'm not talking about, you know, just trouble. I'm talking about rock bottom. I'm talking about wave after wave of bad news, like David has experienced in these men. Ten years. This isn't a bad weekend. This isn't a bad week. This isn't even a bad 2019. This is a bad decade. And it's wave after wave. And here in chapter 30, they've just reached rock bottom. And see, this is a very important question to answer, especially when you're not at rock bottom. How are you going to respond when it's just wave after wave of bad news and grief and great distress? Well, you see three different responses here in the text. Number one, the soldiers, they become bitter. In their distress, they decide on bitterness. And they begin to operate from a base of bitterness. And when you're operating from a base of bitterness, you've got to find somebody to blame. I'm bitter, and I've got to do something with it. Bitterness always needs, needs an object. And so they decide, David is the cause of all my bitterness. And in their bitterness, they, they can't see. They're actually going to put to death the person that's going to save them. But they're operating from this base of bitterness, and, and bitterness means contentious. They're, they're fighting, they're contending. And in their fighting, they've got, they've got to blame, they've got to stone someone. And they're, in their bitterness, they're like a volcano. They're erupting. And when they erupt, what they spew out burns the people that even they care for. These men have great devotion to David. You've seen it many times so far. But here in their bitterness, their base of operation... They're like a volcano, and they can't get away from it. And they're actually burning down the people who are going to help them out. And I want to say this is a tempting reaction to have at rock bottom. This might be the most natural reaction at rock bottom. And especially in our culture, we live in a culture of anger and outrage. I mean, you just have to be on Twitter or talk radio or cable news it's all bitterness and blame. And it gets sort of in your blood work and, and you find yourself yelling at the television screen or yelling at your phone or yelling at your radio. And you, but you know, you know if you employ bitterness, it's like trying to dig your, dig your way out of a hole. It just doesn't work. It feels like you're making progress but you're in a hole. You're trying to get up, but your bitterness actually is causing you to sink lower and lower. And that's what's happening to these soldiers. That's one reaction. Another reaction, Saul, back in 28, he's in great distress. And in his great distress, instead of asking God for help, he goes elsewhere. He's under great distress, and he's disconnected himself from God. And, and to me, one of the saddest parts about Saul is here in his greatest moment of distress, he's consulting a witch. But if you had gone back 
10 or 15 or 20 years, Saul would have never thought of doing something like that. But see, what happened was Saul had a connection to the Lord, and he just decided, instead of turning towards the Lord, I'd rather turn towards myself. And it was just little by little, he begins to step away from the Lord and rely on himself. He doesn't really like the Lord's plan, so he's just going to keep half of the Lord's plan and half of his plan. And now he's all the way over here, and he's completely untethered from the Lord, and he's in great distress, and he doesn't have the spiritual muscle now to go back to the Lord, so he goes elsewhere. He goes to the easiest thing he can find. I wonder if that might be you. You get untethered, you get disconnected, and it doesn't happen all at once, but somehow then when this great moment of distress comes, you don't have the spiritual strength to turn to the Lord because you haven't been exercising that muscle over time. And so you turn and turn to other people, turn to other things, turn to food, turn to alcohol, turn to your computer, trying to think that maybe that's what's going to find some kind of satisfaction. I love David's reaction. He's the third reaction, the one we want to model here. Look with me in verse 6. David was greatly distressed. He's greatly distressed because he's lost all his family, but also for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul. But David, just listen, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And then he called on the priest, Abiathar, verse 7. I love this because this is so simple and so easy for us to model. I'm not saying it's not difficult to do, but it's very simple instructions. Very, very first thing David does in his time of distress, he turns to the Lord. I have no other direction. I've got to go to the Lord. I've got to seek out the Lord. I've got to trust in the Lord. I've built, David's built his spiritual muscle over time. Started back when he trusted the defeat of Goliath. It's happened over 10 years. He's built this spiritual muscle. So when he's at rock bottom, he has the ability to turn towards the Lord. And I want, to look, I want you to look with me on Psalm 69. Psalm 69, we're not sure this, is, this moment is when David wrote this psalm, but you get the sense of, a, of the distress that David's in. Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the way the waters have come up to my neck. What a great description. I sink in the deep mire, and there's no foothold. I just keep going down. It's wave after wave, and I'm up to my neck. I've come into the deep waters. Floods are sweeping over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. You get that same feeling in in 1 Samuel 30. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. What's he going to do? Well, you can read through the psalm later, but look at verse 13. But as for me, Here's a turning point. As for me, what am I going to do? I'm going to become bitter. No. But as for me, I'm going to turn to something else. I'm going to rely on something else. No. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, 
in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. What a powerful prayer. I'm not going to become bitter. I'm going to resist bitterness. I'm going to resist abandoning God. And instead, I love, the phrase I love about this the most, at an acceptable time. See, I'm, in, I'm on God's timetable, not my timetable. See, my prayer, if Paul had wrote Psalm 69, I would have written the first three verses, and I would say, I need an answer today. I wouldn't have said an acceptable time. Or I would have said, you know what an acceptable time would be, God? Yesterday would have been an acceptable time. But do you you hear that from, from David? He's exercised that spiritual muscle over and over and over again. And he has seen that his timing is not the best timing. And so he might be tempted to go to bitterness, but he's got this spiritual muscle that draws him back to God and he trusts in God, and he does the second thing. Both of these things are both very important. He goes to a priest and says, I, I need outside godly counsel. These are the two things that you and I can do every time in distress. You can go to God's word, but you have to have another person that comes alongside of you. And here's this very interesting connection that you wouldn't make unless you were watching episode after episode. Abiathar, this priest, You wouldn't remember his name, but back in chapter 22, you might remember this event. David is on the run, and he goes to the priest Ahimelech for help. Basically goes to like a monastery. There's a bunch of priests in this monastery, and Ahimelech gives David help, and then David runs away, and then Saul comes to Ahimelech and says, Ahimelech, did you help David? And Ahimelech says, yeah, I helped David. I thought he was part of your group. And you remember what Saul does in his overreaction? He kills Ahimelech and 85 priests in the monastery. And only one priest escapes. You know who it is? Abiathar. So at the very moment Saul is consulting a witch, because he's cut himself off from God's people, David is consulting this man of God. Supposed to see those two things happening at the same time. So what you and I can do in great distress is what David did. You can go to God's word, you can go to God in prayer, and you can go to God's people. David gets a good report that, hey, yes, you are going to be overtaken. You are going to be able to rescue And so we continue with the episode. David gets these 600 men. They've been marching for three days and says, guys, we've got to go save our families. Let's keep marching. And they come to this river or this brook called Bezor. And 200 of the 600 men say, we're too tired. We can't go forward. And they say, okay, we're going to leave some of our luggage here. You guys stay here. And the 400 of us will continue to march. And then a very odd thing happens. Now, when they're marching, they're just wandering around in the wilderness They don't know where the Amalekites are. They're not sure which direction they went. They're just wandering around hoping to find some kind of clue. A very odd thing happens. They stumble upon an Egyptian slave. An Egyptian slave who was a slave to the Amalekites. And he's left out in the open field to die. Hey, we're on the run. This guy's getting sick. He's a slave. We're just going to leave him behind. 
And so here this man is dying. He hasn't eaten in three days. He hasn't had any water in three days. And it takes three days to nurse him back to health. I find these verses so fascinating because I ask myself, why is this even in the Bible? I mean, why does God work this way? Why doesn't he just say, David, you're going to rescue, and if you take this road to this place, you're going to find the Amalekites. That just seemed like a simpler way to do it. But that's not the way God operates. And that's the point I want to make here. God uses this tiny little character in what we're going to call God's providence. He uses this tiny little character, unnamed, nearly dead, Egyptian slave, to have a great effect on the rest of the story. Now, this, we've seen this already in Samuel. Hannah, this tiny little character at the very beginning, is like a seed that bursts forth this great story of David. David, who's just about ready to make a colossally bad decision, intersects this tiny little person, Abigail. She changes the whole course of direction for David. And now the same thing's happening. This tiny little character is having a great effect. I want us to take courage that in God's story, there are no tiny characters. There's just no tiny characters. This guy, we don't know his name. All we know about him is he's a slave and he's an Egyptian. It's kind of, you know, like the guys who carried the paralytic to Jesus. Remember the story? No names. We don't know if it was four guys. We don't know if it was two guys. We don't know if it was 10 guys. No names. But everybody knows the story. But these tiny little characters, God uses over and over to change the course of history. And I just want you to know, if you think of yourself, I'm just a tiny little character. I'm never going to get up at a pulpit and preach. I'm not going to be somebody who's in this great leadership position. I'm just this tiny little no-name character. God can use you. God can use you with this little piece of encouragement that you give, little piece of advice, little invitation to come to church or come to a Bible study or pray with somebody. And you, you doing something that you might think is really not very important can change the course of a life could change the course of a family. In some cases, you could change the course of a whole nation. A few years back, I got a message on Facebook from a guy I hadn't heard from in a long time. He says this, Hey, Paul, I wanted to send you a note of thanks. Whether you know it or not, you helped lead me to the Lord when I was 15 years old on a Young Life summer camp trip. While I lived in a very dark and rebellious period for 12 years after my salvation, I rededicated my life to the Lord about nine years ago and have remained truly committed since. I married a wonderful Christian woman and now my entire immediate family is saved as well. Your words, your actions when I was a teenager have followed me my entire life. I'm also grateful the Lord allowed our paths to cross. Even though it's been probably 20 years since we saw each other last, you're someone I think of often. Again, thank you for your obedience to minister to me. When when he sent me that note, I thought, the thing I remember about Chad is that I never spent enough time with Chad. That's the first thing I thought about. He was a guy who had all kinds of problems in his life. 
And he didn't go to the high school I was in. He just randomly ended up in this room that I was in for a week. And I just thought, I should do more with Chad. But I don't have time. I just don't have time. I, I've got one week. And that's the week. T- tiny little insertion. And that's how God used God's providence. He brings people across your path. And you might be one of those people. And I want us to be encouraged by that. Final thing here, this episode's drawing to a a close. David defeats the Amalekites. You can read it in verse uh, 18 and 19. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. He returns returns to the 200 men at Bezor who've been left behind. And when they return, an argument breaks out. What's the argument? The 400 men who went to battle, they're like, hey, we don't feel like sharing what we won. Verse 22, notice what they say. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David and said, Now notice what they said. Because they did not go with us, we will not give any of the spoil that we have recovered. It's about us. See, they got the spirit of Saul on them right at this point. It's about us. We've recovered. We've done something. We don't want to give away stuff that we've done. And you're supposed to contrast David's reaction in verse 23. But David said... You shall not do so, my brothers. Notice what he says. With what the Lord, Yahweh, has given us. God has preserved us. God has given into our hands the band that came against us. Do you see the difference? Do you see what it means to be a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart? All of your direction is going to be towards God. God has provided for something for us. God is working in his time, and I'm not going to try to speed up that timetable. It's all about God in David's mindset. And so David trusts God at rock bottom. He trusts God and gives credit when he's in a moment of victory. So what's your base of operation? What would your friends say? What would your spouse say? What would your family say? Operate out of a base of bitterness, base of self-centeredness, or a base of grace like David. It's very interesting in the Hebrew, the word bezor sometimes is translated good news. What's the good news here? 200 men who could not fight for themselves had a king who would fight for them. He restored to these 200 men everything they lost and then added to it. Now, what kind of king does that remind you of? Jesus. He goes and fights for people who cannot fight for themselves. He is one day going to restore you and I to everything we were supposed to have that we lost. And then, if that's not enough, he's going to give even more. 
And when you know that, when that works down in your soul and you understand Jesus done, has done that for you, that, that he's done that for you, then you, you'll have a base of grace. You won't have a base of bitterness because you know what God has done for you. Let's pray together. Lord, as you instruct us to take these elements and we see the base of grace here, that your blood in your body was given and sacrificed for people who could not fight for themselves. So I pray, Lord, that you would um, minister through these common elements to every soul. That those who are here who have trusted in you, would, they, would you really help them see where they're really trusting in your timetable or their own? they're really operating out of a base of grace or they're operating out of some other base like bitterness or they're looking elsewhere, would you, would you reel anyone back in who's taking that first small step away from you, who's not exercising their muscle of faith in the God who loves them? Would you strengthen your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.